0: Today is the 6th of January, 2015, and this is episode 176. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future.
1: this will be part two of our retrospective because there's definitely way more to talk about than we covered in the last show. Even though that was uh, all very important stuff, it focused a little bit more on the technical side than on the social and community side. I wanted to bring that up because that's a really important aspect of Bitcoin for a lot of people who are interested in it. One thing I can say to start off this discussion is that it was interesting to see personally having traveled a lot for conferences, Bitcoin conferences over the last, well, Almost two years since I started doing Let's Talk Bitcoin. Gosh, it's almost been two years. So over the last year and a half or so, I've traveled a lot for Bitcoin conferences and it was really interesting to see the status of conferences kind of evolve and change over time. And what I mean by that is that, you know, they started out as we've talked about on the show before, they started out more community focused and it was a smaller community for sure. Then the community grew and Some of them got a little more corporatized. A few of them got a little more specialized in the community side and kind of rebelled against that trend. Some of them started to branch out beyond just sort of the Bitcoin circles. We did see sort of a trend of specialization in conferences. But what happened, I would say, around the spring of 2014 was that there were just so many conferences, and a lot of the people who were really trying hard to work on Bitcoin projects, I think were kind of feeling like, gosh, I don't have time to work as much as I want to because there's just so many conferences and I feel pressure to be at all of them. And I think a lot of people were experiencing somewhat of burnout. And at the same time, the Bitcoin price was going down and that made it more difficult for conferences who perhaps had amateur organizers or perhaps were banking on the fact that the Bitcoins that they were holding were going to go up and they could do more with their conferences or that they could profit from having a Bitcoin conference because they'd be holding Bitcoins. And that turned out to not be the case. In fact, it was kind of the opposite because Bitcoin went down and that impacted a lot of planned conferences or conferences that were in the in the works or the planning stages.
0: So you're saying the conference bubble has popped?
1: I think it's safe to say that the conference bubble has popped, this conference bubble, <laughs> at least for now. One thing we did see emerge that's really interesting is like we've covered uh, the inside Bitcoin's conferences in the past on this show. I've gone to several of them in different parts of the world, and what we saw with that company, it was originally Media Bistro, and then they changed to Meckler Media, and they're now Meckler Media. They were putting on conferences about all kinds of things, mostly related to tech, I think, but what they did within the last year was basically sold off all their divisions except Bitcoin and 3D printing, and now they're having Bitcoin conferences every three weeks or so, or every month, and in different parts of the world, and just doing it as a real professional operation. Those conferences, I've always felt mixed about them because on one hand, they did get way more professional and better and more pleasant to attend as as time went on. Like They really had their stuff together. They are professional conference organizers for sure. And a lot of the talks were really interesting, especially at the last one I went to in Las Vegas uh, a couple of months ago. On the other hand, they did sort of have that corporate flavor to them. (laughs) And you know, a lot of the folks that I'd encounter at those conferences were probably not people that I personally would run into in any other context. You know, a lot of people who were kind of interested in regulatory compliance. I think some of the sponsors were like facial scanning software that would scan your driver's license and match you with facial recognition databases and things like that. Like really scary stuff, stuff that I would say I'm ideologically definitely not aligned with at all. At the last conference I went to of Inside Bitcoins, there were some people who, like, a lot of people knew who I was and knew about Let's Talk Bitcoin, which was cool. But there were some people that kind of requested me to interview them. I think they were more interested in marketing their stuff than having interviews that would make for really interesting, innovative content on Let's Talk Bitcoin. And so I turned some of them down. It's just been interesting to see sort of the evolution of conferences amid the conference bubble, kind of popping at the same time.
0: Well, if you think about it, at the time that we went to the Inside Bitcoins conference, uh, the second one in uh, in Vegas, you know, it's been about a year, and at that point, as far as I remember, the only fundraiser that had happened in the cryptocurrency space was Mastercoin. Yeah, that's right. It was even before Bitshares started their fundraiser. That happened in January. There really wasn't too much. And so that I think is a major difference. This year, that model of crowdfunding, giving back a token or not giving back a token, you know, giving back the future promise of the token, as in the case of something like Ethereum, that's, that's aggressively different. And so now people really do have something to market a lot of times instead of just having this cool idea or a cool project that they're working on. Even if you want to privately fund it, it's fundamentally different. Then, if you're looking for funds from the crowd. And so, yeah, definitely, I've I felt that pressure yeah, well, too, Stephanie.
1: You've had, kind of stopped going to conferences, Adam.
0: Well, I overcommitted myself Is the just kind of flat truth of it. Uh, you know, the one thing I've managed to consistently do is Let's Talk Bitcoin, with the exception of like two weeks ago when I had my power out for two days and couldn't get anything up. um couldn't get it but, up, huh? You know, <laughs> thank you, Stephanie. Sorry. But, uh, you know, outside of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, I took on way too many projects, and so conferences. You know, the last conference I went to was the Toronto one in the spring of, uh, of twenty fourteen. Wow! And so you know, it's been quite a while, while year, for you. Oh yeah, no, it's been a while. You know, it's been a while. It's been like what nine months, something like that. Yeah. So I mean, it's not it's not that long, but yeah, it's been a while, and I haven't missed going to conferences. You know, it's nice to see people. But we live in a world that's empowered by the internet and it's not that difficult to work with somebody if you want to work with them. In conferences, you know, conferences, the thing about them is that if you're trying to make something happen or you have an opportunity that you want others to get involved with, then conferences are great because you have a self-selected group of people who also are super interested in that thing and have enough time to go to conferences and the money to do it too. They're willing to, to invest into their further experience in this space. But it becomes kind of counterproductive after you've already hit capacity. So even though I stopped going to conferences, I still feel like a lot of this year, you know, I I took on too many projects and all of the projects suffered as a result.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting reflection. I think a lot of people felt that way, too, in the Bitcoin space. Like when we get excited about something, we do tend to overcommit because we don't want to miss out. Right. And it's interesting because when you're busy, you got to prioritize stuff. Like we're all busy, right? We all make choices and decisions about what we want to do with our limited time. And it's interesting, Adam, that you really didn't prioritize those conferences compared to your other projects that you were working on.
0: You know, this year is a little bit different for me. This year I've dramatically slashed my projects that I'm involved with and basically told everybody who I was working with that they were going to have to pay me if they wanted me to stay on. So that was a good way to clear the decks. Good
1: for you. Well, you know, one thing I haven't seen that I, I kind of, exp- I'm, I'm a little surprised about is online conferences, you know, because uh, that's the solution. when in-person conferences get overwhelming for everybody is, well, why don't we just have a teleconference and perhaps it's not the same, or perhaps the folks that have needed that networking have already gotten enough of it. And now they're in the phases of working on the projects that came out of that in-person networking. I'm not really sure.
0: Well, here's that overcommitting committing thing again. Um, so one of the projects that we've been talking about not working on because it requires kind of precursor tools that we're working on right now is a project I've been calling Gatherly. <laughs> and it is basically an online conference platform that uses... What's
1: with the Lee? Everything's Lee.
0: Token Lee? <laughs> <laughs> it's a startup-y thing, right? I, I picked a, About six months ago, I picked a dumb startup name and then I, I wound up starting a startup and so name went with it. I didn't want to do anything blockchain or, you know, bit or anything like that, because I personally get all those names confused. Adam Lee. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're, I think you're
2: very startup Lee.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, if, if you're going to do a dumb startup, then you might as well do a dumb startup. But yeah, I think you're totally right, Stephanie. You know, that's something that after you've gone to a bunch of conferences, you kind of realize that. You know, a lot of the stuff that you could get, you could get through, you know, an online conference, you just have to not treat it like an online conference, you have to treat it like you're trying to like you're replicating the value that comes from a real conference. And of course, uh, you know, after we started thinking about this, not necessarily talking about it, um, the MasterCoin guys, uh, the MasterCoin team seems to have had basically the same sort of uh, the same sort of realization um, and I believe that there actually is an online conference, a virtual conference that uses avatars and things like that, which is different than what I wanted to do, that is happening either this month or next month. So, yeah, I think that virtual conferences, especially as we get closer towards functional virtual reality and the ability to interact in that way, that's the direction that we're trending in because it's just so expensive to travel. It
1: would be really great not to have to deal with the TSA too. (laughs) Just saying.
0: Totally. I mean, again, you know, we're empowered in so many ways by the internet that the idea that we're not empowered in this way and it actually requires us all going to the same space is just kind of ridiculous. So I think that, again, it's something where there are enough of us who have kind of realized this problem and Bitcoin provides the solution, both in terms of payment services, in terms of, you know, token controlled access, giving you various levels of permissions into whatever the system is that you're talking about. There are a lot of solutions to be had here. They just need to be built.
1: One thing that I've really felt about the Bitcoin community is that it just way exceeds the Dunbar number. Like, Not only can you not keep up with the news, even if your job is Bitcoin, you can't keep up with the news, but also the relationships, like all the interactions, all the business partners, all the networking and friendships and things like that. It blows my mind. I can't keep up with it. And there's this idea that humans are evolutionarily sort of wired to really only be able to maintain about 150 acquaintance-type relationships at the same time. Anyone who exceeds that kind of falls out of your circles and you kind of lose touch. And with close relationships, it's even fewer than that, maybe a, a handful, a dozen, or something like that. I'm good at remembering names and faces and keeping people straight, but i it tends to overwhelm me. I have trouble with that sometimes.
2: I've had a very different experience, of in-person meetings and conferences this year. I think if you remember looking back at the Las Vegas Bitcoin conference, at that time I kind of made it clear that I wanted to engage in events that were more community-driven and in more places than simply North America. I've actually avoided most of the very big mainstream conferences and focused on two things. One, I've done a few conferences, not as many as I would like around the world. And two, I've done um, a lot of engagements with local meetup groups. And for me, meetup has been a very big part of my activities for 2014. Because I think at some point in the beginning of the year, the local communities achieved kind of that critical mass where you can really get a meetup group going. In fact, I founded a meetup group in San Francisco for Bitcoin developers around the same time in November of 2013 with just two members. Today, that meetup group has 600 members and at least 200 of them are active and it's growing at a tremendous rate. Meetup groups all around the world have blossomed. I was looking at the statistics the other day, There's currently a Bitcoin meetup happening in 74 countries in 341 different cities. To me, that's that's a tremendous aspect of this community. So I've been visiting meetup groups and been doing meetup events. And it's really astonishing to me because I meet a very, very different audience. So you go to these big conferences, the price of admission is like, you know, $400 to get in. You get schmoozed at by all of these fundraising startupy investor types Blech. and you know it's 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 really all about you know, I raised one billion dollars and I raised two billion dollars, yeah, that one upsmanship uh, yeah, right, and I had <laughs> unlimited breadsticks at the buffet for lunch, dude um <laughs> 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 it's like it's just ridiculous and sickening. Anyway, I go to these meetups and they've reached a a critical mass. I'll make arrangements to do a meetup, for example, easily can get 200 to 400 people to show up, which is really comparable to many of these conferences in terms of attendees. The big difference, the conference is entirely free. The meetup rather is entirely free compared to a conference entry. It's completely local. It's about the people who are already in that city. And it's about people who are, many of them new to Bitcoin, who want to hear about Bitcoin for the first time. At least half the audience is relatively new. A third of the audience is completely new, and they're finding this opportunity to come see a, a meetup that's uh, heavily promoted and want to, to get a, a good presentation on Bitcoin or talk to someone about Bitcoin. And the audience that I meet, the people that I meet at, this, at these meetups, is completely different than the conferences. It's extremely... Heartwarming really to, to meet all of these regular people who come up to me at these meetups and they say, you know, I just got into Bitcoin. This is my first meetup. I started reading about it last year or I, I saw this video about Bitcoin and started learning about it. And and now I'm really into it. I'm quitting my job and now I'm doing a Bitcoin startup or I just got a job at a Bitcoin startup or I'm learning to program in order to learn how to do Bitcoin, or I'm using Bitcoin to send money to my family abroad. Just all of these really wonderful stories from real people, real users using Bitcoin. It's a completely different perspective for me, and I've done more of those than I've done conferences this year. I see this side of the community that is absolutely reinvigorating and reminds me every time why the hell I'm doing this. Sounds pretty compelling. Yeah, that is very inspiring. I'm <laughs> going address. to some of these meetups. No kidding. There's lots of them going on. The trick, as you said, Stephanie, is to focus on the things that are important, not get overwhelmed by the conferences. Honestly, for me, conferences are part of my job. So it's how I make some of my income for the year. I do these professionally. It's part of my job. But I also try to add. A meetup at every city I go to so that I can uh, get in touch with the community and do something that's free to attend with no cost and introduce new people to Bitcoin. And it's been extremely rewarding.
1: Maybe my problem is I'm not getting paid well enough.
2: (laughs) If they're going to be um, obnoxious conferences, then it really does help if you're getting paid to go. If you're not getting paid then make sure it's something that's emotionally and intellectually rewarding like Amita. I've found the perfect balance. And so if I'm going to go to a banking conference with lots of investors, I'm going to charge them twice my going rate to do that just for the annoyance factor. And it really does kind of dull the uh, annoyance quite a bit when you know that that's going to cover expenses for a couple of months and also indirectly subsidize you visiting the local meetup for free. (laughs) So that's kind of a great way to do it. It's very enjoyable. I'd like to point out another interesting trend. You know, you're talking about the bubble of the Bitcoin conference. I think what's really interesting and is going to be an even bigger trend in 2015, I've seen it in the last three months, Bitcoin as a topic at mainstream conferences. 2015 will not be the year of Bitcoin conferences, although there will be hundreds of Bitcoin conferences all around the world in 2015. And I think we're going to start seeing fragmentation and specialization. We're going to see more Bitcoin conferences for investors, Bitcoin conferences for developers, and I'm really looking forward to that. But what we're also going to see more and more of, and I'm hoping to do more of in 2015, is Bitcoin as a topic at mainstream conferences. So far this year, I'm looking forward to doing South by Southwest in the springtime. I'm going to be talking to a um, financial and economic inclusion conference in January and February, looking to do TEDx. Charles Hoskinson just did a TEDx recently. A couple of other people have done TEDx in a number of different cities And and I really think we're going to start seeing Bitcoin first at general technology conferences as a technology topic, and then even broader types of uh, conferences where it's going to be the exciting, interesting, edgy topic where you can get a lot of interested people who have never really looked into Bitcoin. They've just heard about it. You can play with the topic a bit and introduce it to a brand new audience. And I'm really looking forward to that for 2015.
0: This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is Shin. That's S-H-I-N. Shin. You've got until the 10th of January to visit Let's Talk Bitcoin.com and Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Some quick announcements, we're looking for some more on-air talent for the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, specifically at least one dedicated interviewer, someone who's able to take on the role of interviewer as a listener surrogate, as we like to do here, ask the obvious questions and leave the judgments largely to the listener. If that sounds interesting, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com to start the conversation. That role will be credited on-air and get you a share of the LTB coin rewards for each episode your work is featured on. Also, on sponsorships, thank you for all of the interest that we've received. The system sort of collapsed under its own weight, and we're currently reworking it. We'll be redeploying towards the end of January. I'll make another announcement at that point. All the tokens out there will be honored. That's enough out of me. Back to the
2: show.
1: This isn't the most pleasant topic to talk about, but I think it goes along with the idea of talking about the community, and we'll see what Andreas, the eternal optimist, has to say about this, but We've definitely covered a lot of um, prominent scams in the Bitcoin world on this show over the past year.
0: Not, and there have been a lot more that we didn't cover too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Not just overt scams, but like disasters and horrible warnings, you know, or things that were somewhere in between the two. Just real spectacular failures. It's interesting to see how the community sort of responds. On one hand, it takes scammers in the community to perpetrate the scams and it takes people some people are enablers but some people are are duped you know are genuinely fooled by them and that's what it takes to make scams kind of happen and then you also see people kind of jumping in and trying to call them out and criticizing them and blowing the whistle and exposing them i think it takes up a lot of energy within the bitcoin community to have these going on I'm sure it sucks away productivity from people who otherwise maybe would be doing projects or getting involved in meetups or community building. And it kind of like diminishes people's excitement or enthusiasm about Bitcoin when they see a lot of these scams going on. They may, they may see that from the outside and say, Oh, I'm not sure if I want to jump in. It sounds like, you know, this isn't really going to be a community I want to be involved in. So I don't really know exactly what I'm trying to say, but I guess I wanted to get your perspective on the community and scams and and how they relate to each other.
2: Yeah, I mean, this has been a year of just horrific, horrific scams. You know, first you had the announcement that the gold markets were being rigged. Then you had Libor. Then we got those leaked tapes that showed that the New York Fed was in complete cahoots with the big banks that they were supposedly regulated. Just recently, we found out... (laughs) That The press releases that the Fed issued had been written by bankers and handed to them to release as if they're the mouthpiece. These are the supposed regulators. And not two weeks ago, you have the head of one of the largest banks that, that has already been fined billions of dollars for defrauding consumers in the mortgage scandals and things like that, lobbying members of Congress all night in order to include in the omnibus provisions of the budget a section of law that weakens some of the main provisions of Dodd-Frank and allows the banks to dump trillions of dollars of derivative risk directly into the FDIC-protected and covered branches they have, and thereby transferring and socializing all of the risk and losses essentially transferring that risk to the taxpayer while keeping the profits for themselves. And this at the same time that we're seeing again and again and again, the Justice Department refusing to prosecute, the main financial regulators really dealing out these tiny, tiny fines that don't even amount to a dip in the profits of these two big-to-fail institutions. Uh, Bonuses and salaries are up through the roof while the economy is stagnating. And it seems that not only are you just completely mired in fraud and corruption, but it seems it's become not only business as usual, but essentially all of the institutions that are supposedly designed to protect consumers and to protect the integrity of the system are in complete collusion with these criminals. And it seems like now it's not just a matter of being defrauded, but the the corruption itself is beginning to subvert the very basis of law, the very basis of the system of justice, and to corrupt the system of regulation, which then leads to a complete contempt for the rules. And that's really what we're seeing here. Is that what you're talking about?
1: I get your point, Andreas, and it's well taken. I mean, obviously, that is totally true.
2: Oh, oh, wait, you're, you're talking about the itty-bitty uh, fraudsters who are scamming people in Bitcoin and actually getting caught and punished for the most part? I'm sorry, I thought we were talking about the big fish.
0: There is certainly an element of that. I mean, Andreas, that's you have a very good point. And, Stephanie, to your point, you know, I mean... My point is that people
1: go into Bitcoin to get away from that st- stuff, you
2: know, and... A- and... <laughs> exactly. No, sorry. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. This, uh, w- we seem to attract some of the really nastiest opportunists in this, in this community. And I think part of that is the fact that you've got this enthusiasm uh, combined with naivete and a lot of uh, new people who are putting money into this space. You've got this rush of investment. And so that creates an area that is rife for exploitation um, you know whether it's Gox or Moolah or uh, other little scammers, fishing expeditions and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think it's a, it's about it being profitable like we've talked about um, on the show before. And just to add on to that, I, I recently saw somebody do a calculation of what it what the net costs and benefits are or profits are. From doing a pump and dump altcoin scam, essentially. And even now with all the awareness of, of the fact that so many altcoins are pump and dump scams, it's still profitable. <laughs> like you can make about 20 bitcoins a month doing it when you add up all the costs and benefits or, or the costs and profits when all is said and done. Um, it's, it's still profitable to do. And so I, they're not gonna go away or that that's not gonna go away until it's not profitable anymore
0: well but that's that's the solution to a certain extent you know we talk about horrible warnings and shining examples and that's exactly what is happening in that market the market is working over time you know that's down to 20 bitcoins I wonder what it was a year ago I bet you it was more
2: yep for sure this is one of the the things that makes it very difficult for those of us who are working really hard to promote and disseminate this incredibly important technology is that other people are taking advantage of it in order to further their own interests in in a very callous and greedy way. It really is very disappointing when you have to kind of answer for the actions of a few scamsters at every turn you know this comes up in every mainstream interview in every question it comes up when i'm doing talks in front of regulators or having discussions with regulators it comes up on mainstream media all the time it's the but main that's focus. a downside
0: of decentralized systems i mean you know decentralized systems have a lot of advantages that you know like you're able to go out and represent Bitcoin. You're able to speak about Bitcoin because you don't have to necessarily get permission from some sort of centralized organization. So I mean, there, there are bads that go along with, with the goods here.
2: Well, the, I think the, the difference between decentralized systems and centralized systems is really simple. In decentralized systems, scams happen at the edges. In centralized systems, scams happen from the top.
0: That is a very important point right there, is that while there are scams in Bitcoin, just as there are scams anywhere, there is money, essentially you know those people tend to be punished altcoins are a little different cuz altcoins already have this kind of culture of anonymity and really there it's just more about promises but as but if you look back at the scams that have really been scams like the pirate ponzi scheme he actually i believe is in jail right now the SEC went after him and there're certainly you know there have been lots of rumors now for months that there are other uh, others who are being targeted as well so right. again, like enforcement comes down on these small projects. And again, it's because they're not too big to
2: fail to a certain extent. Right. And when you have a centralized system, the scammers are not thwarted by regulation. They simply take over the regulatory bodies until they own them in both the metaphorical sense and in some cases in the direct sense. You know, don't forget, Bernie Madoff was not just the head of a fund that was effectively a Ponzi scheme. He was also the head of the regulatory body that managed and regulated such funds.
1: When the concept of Bitcoin scams comes up over and over again in mainstream interviews and among politicians, I think part of it is also a problem with their thinking. They can't fathom like a really decentralized system. And so they think, oh, well, Andreas Antonopoulos must represent Bitcoin. And in reality, you you don't. Like, <laughs> that's a concept that's kind of in their minds. Nobody represents Bitcoin. It's a, it's a wild animal, it's its own thing. <laughs> you know, it's
2: exactly. I, I actually was laughing the other day. I saw a video that said, in this interview of Andreas Antonopoulos, CEO of Bitcoin. <laughs> 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 and I'm like, hang on a second. I thought I was both fired, <laughs> went to jail, and committed suicide, according to the news. How can I possibly be doing <laughs> interviews? Wow. You're absolutely right. It is unfathomable. The very concept of a decentralized system of trust is just so difficult to grasp and so disruptive as a concept in itself that people have to attach it to a person and then have to attach all of the associations of Bitcoin to that person and all of the associations of the actions of that person back to Bitcoin. It's a two-way street. And it's not just that person. I mean, that's the important thing to keep in mind here. Did I ever
0: tell you guys about the time that I was uh, a self-imposed spokesman for Anonymous for about two days? Did I ever tell no, you this? I'd love to hear that story. This was back, I guess, before the Occupy protests. The Anonymous organization or groups within it were doing stuff that was actually kind of interesting. They were doing a lot of uh, digging work, you know, a lot of WikiLeaks-type stuff, really. And then there were other parts of Anonymous that were doing other things that were, you know, being portrayed as terrorist attacks. And the thing that struck me about Anonymous and then, you know, became applicable to decentralized organizations in general is that because there is no permission structure, literally anybody can say anything and have about as much authority as anybody else. Credibility is slightly different, but authority is basically the same. It's not that there is one guy, right? Who's in charge of any of these things. It's that from the perspective of the media, whoever has the most interesting or the, you know, the most terrible, depending on your perspective, story to tell about that organization, which might from their perspective be entirely true, is then held up as the definitive story. And that's the thing, is these organizations, whether you're talking about Bitcoin or Anonymous or anything, they don't have consistent narratives. Each individual within it has their own narrative, their own set of actions. I recognize this about this organization. And I was like, Well, I could go and I could actually tell the truth and it would be interesting and I know how to talk to reporters. And so I joined one of their IRC channels and started just essentially talking to a lot of different people within it. And I discovered that within that IRC, there were maybe a hundred different channels that were all different kind of operations. And it was this sort of self-imposed structure of organization within this organization. I talked to a lot of people and I was like, Hey, I, I want to help you guys get your message out there and actually tell the real story of the interesting things that you're doing. And got, you know, some feedback that was very positive and some feedback that was very negative because the idea even to some people, just as with Bitcoin, the idea that someone might speak for, you know, a perspective actually is negative because it's not the perspective necessarily that that person might have you know, made contacts with journalists who at that point were very interested in talking with somebody, got pretty close to actually following through on what I was going to do. Then I just got cold feet because again, like there's, there's this, by associating myself in that way, there's a large amount of risk there. And there were people from the anonymous organization who were getting arrested at that point. So I, I backed off and, you know, didn't actually follow through with any of it. It's, it's a long way of saying, it's sort of impossible <laughs> uh, to to interface decentralized systems with people or systems that are used to only centralized systems. They're just
2: not compatible, like you said, Andrea. Centralized media expects centralized stories, creates centralized stories, and responds only to centralized stories because that's the only way they can create the kind of narrative they, they expect.
0: Well, but that's what you get all kinds of choices. That's the thing is that like, if if you're talking about a company, you know, the media might lie about them and say, oh, well, this is this thing. And that, that actually might not be true. But with a decentralized organization, you can almost always find somebody who will say whatever type of crazy thing you want. And then that can be the narrative. So that's the thing is that, you know, the extreme can really come out.
1: There've been a couple of articles that have come out recently and I guess this isn't new, this has been sort of being said a lot this year, basically alleging that those libertarians are making Bitcoin look bad, and they're Bitcoin's worst enemy, right? Uh, the people who are attracted to Bitcoin because they like the aspect of it being outside the system and outside of the Federal Reserve and centralization, and these people are, are harming Bitcoin's image and their voices are drowning out all of us reasonable people who want regulation. Please regulate us. Let me lick your boots a little bit more. Uh, and I, I mean, obviously, you can tell what I think of this idea. I don't think libertarian voices are overrepresented in Bitcoin by any means. I mean, that's almost a laughable statement. But what do you guys think about the idea that the the Bitcoin community as a whole, like ignoring political stuff for a minute, is damaging its own reputation. I I guess that's sort of a a centralized statist way to put it. And what would you expect from mainstream media?
2: (laughs) I think it's almost a manufactured story in that it's such a predictable and cliche storyline. First of all, you've got the concern troll angle, which is, I'm only writing this because I really want the good of the Bitcoin community. So now let me tell you everything that's bad about the Bitcoin community. Mm, right? Concern like, troll.
1: That's great to point out.
2: Yeah. And at the same time, then it's going through the predictable stereotyping and smearing against an entire community based on a few exaggerated caricatures. It reminds me of the article I saw about Porkfest, which was written by this journalist. I don't remember if it was CNN or Washington Post. or Washington Post. <laughs> yeah, and it, it you could just hear the dripping cynicism and and disdain of the person writing it, and everything was just an exaggerated caricature showing... Like, the only thing it revealed was that the person went there with certain preconceived notions, made absolutely no effort to talk to real human beings, and then wrote the story that he'd already had in his head about this. It's yeah, the same could have saved as... A trip. <laughs>
1: I know the one you're talking about, and yeah, that's absolutely. It was a totally faith-based operation. You
2: know, it's like yeah, exactly or
1: belief, not based on evidence, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it's like the, the Nixon sneering about his entire opposition being dirty-haired hippies. It's about reducing Occupy to a bunch of boiled brats that are thuggishly occupying property and then defecating out in the open, you know, forget what they're actually protesting, let's not pay any attention to that. It's always the same very, very obvious, very narrowly disguised attempt to not talk about the issue, but instead talk about the community in a way that emulates a specific stereotype, reduce the credibility based on that, and then, by extension, dismiss any of the ideas that are coming out of that particular sector. It's propaganda, it's delegitimization, it's written based on a classic propaganda recipe that has existed for decades and decades. It's not even original propaganda. It's not even creative propaganda. It's pulling out the same old tired playbook And repeating the same cliches. Now, the funny thing is that you don't have to be someone who is explicitly trying to pull this propaganda game. The wonderful thing about journalism is that if you are completely embedded in that environment, if you live and breathe the modern sensationalism-driven, empty, soulless journalism that exists in most media today that narrative it just comes out of your pores you don't even need to think of it as propaganda your reflexive reaction to being exposed to anything even slightly challenging or any new ideas is to immediately make every normative assumption pull a framing context out of your a- smear the opposition with that make a ad hominem attack followed by a attack by association wrap it all up in six to eight hundred words, and publish it. That is now considered journalism. So, boo to that.
1: I think that was considered journalism for a long time. It's a pretty classic story, and obviously I agree with you.
2: It's lazy. It's not even creative propaganda. I mean, think of a better way to serve the normative, boring narrative than just pulling out the same old playbook that's been used for so many years. It's not even being original, really.
0: Come on, Concern Trolls, up your game. (laughs) Up your game. Well, but that's the world that we live in, though. I mean, like, everywhere you look, you see that we're doing exactly the same thing functionally that we were doing before, even if it didn't work. It's not like Bitcoin exists in a vacuum or any of these things exist in a vacuum. They exist as a counterpoint to the reality that everybody surrounds themselves with and that, you know, kind of pervades everywhere you look.
2: Why the hell would you fix it? You think it's broken. It's not broken. The system is not broken. The system is working perfectly to deliver exactly well, the outcomes it is supposed to deliver. It is delivering enormous amounts of profit, power, and control to the people who own these media companies. For those people, that system is not broken. I mean, we think the system is broken, but the system isn't working for us, doesn't give a shit about us, and was never working for us. The system isn't broken. The system is working exactly as it's supposed to be.
0: Thanks for listening to episode 176 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubin, This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.